0: But it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we the are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans Podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. My brother, Alex Olshonsky, or Olo, is a dear friend. We've spent time together in Guatemala, and he's fast becoming one of the most prominent voices on addiction and the psychedelic renaissance. We dive into Olo's personal story, breaking free from his proclivity to taking a cocktail of narcotics while working in high-growth tech startups, as well as his powerful journey navigating addiction. We discuss his concerns, risks, and hopes for the rise of entheogens, what he's learned from spending time with the Shipibo indigenous lineages how we both got a little bit messed up from studying postmodern philosophy, navigating the woke anti-woke culture wars, his definition of false urgency and socially acceptable addictions, unpacking the modality of Hakomi, which is a lesser known method of somatic psychology, and so much more. This was a real pleasure to record. And I hope that you get as much from this conversation as I did. And this episode of Curious Humans is brought to you by the one and only Nervous System Mastery, which is my flagship five-week boot camp that's designed to equip you with evidence-backed protocols to cultivate calm and emotional regulation. Our third cohort will be running this spring. Early bird applications are now open. And my sense is that if this conversation with Alex resonates with you, then you'd likely be an amazing fit for this cohort. This curriculum really represents my attempt to distill everything I've learned in recent years about how to create the conditions for our nervous system flourishing. And previous students have shared how taking part not only improved their sleep and their quality of relationships, but also tap into deeper states of joy, clarity, and confidence in their lives. We've had over 400 students complete this training, and many have said it's been the most impactful thing they've ever done for their personal growth. So if you're intrigued at all, you can find more details and apply to join this cohort at nsmastery.com. Okay, without further ado, please enjoy this heartfelt conversation with my dear friend, Olo. Okay, welcome to the Curious Humans podcast, Alex. Johnny, it's a pleasure to be here, man. Yeah, it's a pleasure to to have this conversation as well. How are you feeling in three words? Hmm, I'm feeling curious,
1: effervescent, rooted.
0: Hmm, beautiful. Okay. Well, I, I'm pretty sure this conversation is going to go in a ton of different directions, but to kick things off, I'd love to ask you, were you particularly curious as a child? And if so, could you tell me a story about something that you were curious about?
1: I was a very curious child. Um, Some of my earliest memories, I grew up in Maryland um, and kind of of like a mix of like suburban Maryland, just uh, north of DC. So Southern Maryland. And um, I would run around our neighborhood and there were these little creeks and um, forests and like what I was most curious about was like creating a map of the of the territory, if you will, around the neighborhood and um I remember even like exploring and trying to really like chart all of the all of the the nooks and the creeks, and we'd had a little crew within the neighborhood and um I was just so curious about what what maybe existed beyond the scope of like where. I don't know how old I was even, but where like little kids would, would go out and venture and play and ride rollerblades and scooters too. And so um, my, some of my earliest curiosities and memories are always actually around nature, uh, which was something that didn't really hit me until later in life, how important nature
0: uh, is for me. Mm. Yeah, yeah, likewise. And were there any books or stories that you were particularly fond of growing up?
1: there were i was a hardcore fantasy nerd and so um i became when i discovered um tolkien and uh, the hobbit and then uh, the lord of the rings and the silmarillion like i got the book of maps and went deep into that world i was also very obsessed with harry potter when um i don't did you read harry potter when as they were coming out when yeah. when you know we were kids
0: <laughs> absolutely yeah of course
1: oh yeah <laughs> the in we would my parents would take me to barnes and noble on the nights when the new one would be released and we'd mm-hmm. go at midnight and i would get the book and then read for 36 hours straight
0: yeah um, i did the and same and so
1: those the you did the same. Yeah. 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 And oh, man, isn't it kind of sad that I hope that doesn't, I mean, will that still ever happen again? Mm. Uh, anyways, I digress, but um, yeah, Jedi's wizards fantasy. That was what
0: I was particularly obsessed with and drawn to. Mm, amazing. Yeah. Kelly and I've been getting hooked on the new Lord of the Rings series on Amazon and it's surprisingly good. We've got, we've got fully drawn in. <laughs> don't no
1: spoilers i am saving it um, and, I, okay. and i haven't and i haven't watched it yet but i'm i'm very excited to
0: <laughs> okay so um well i i know that you're you're currently working on a book right now and that it's about your life in silicon valley um kind of in the heart of silicon valley at, at twitter and venturebeat and could you give listeners um maybe like paint a picture for listeners around what that experience was like and, and maybe any memories that kind of stand out during your time there.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, when I moved to San Francisco in 2009, um, it's, it's hard to imagine this now, but it was quite a different scene back then. Tech was just really emerging as, as a nascent industry. And, um, I joined Salesforce Uh, in uh, 2010. And then from there, I joined Twitter um, and was at Twitter through its heyday for about three and a half years. And so that was from 2011 to 2015. And uh, at that time, uh, man, it was really exciting uh, on the one hand where we... uh, This was before the veil had had been busted around social media and technology in general. Uh, We... Generally, believe that we were a force for good in the world, and we had reason to and evidence to support that. The Arab Spring was tweeting live, um, and we we saw what we were doing as really buttresses of free speech and democracy. Uh, and besides all that, just working at a company like Twitter, where we had three meals a day, um, like yoga, improv, tap classes, uh, and then all these celebrities coming to speak. Everyone from uh, I'm trying to remember, like Hillary Clinton to um, uh, Sir Patrick Stewart, the Star Trek fella. and some. R- nice. It was just a cool spot to be. Yeah. And so, on the one hand, it, it felt like very um, validating and exciting to be in such a cool place at such a cool time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what that that did for me psychologically was it provide a a little bit of a false uh, bolster to uh, my ego um because behind the scenes i was in the throes of a pretty severe um polysubstance addiction um one that had started uh, early on i mean when i look back i think i was probably uh, psychologically and and spiritually, um, an an addict for, for many years, even dating back to high school, but it didn't get to, uh, extreme levels until I found myself in San Francisco and working a really high stress, high intense career that, um, in my mind, this, uh, biohacking cocktail of narcotics, um, (laughs) helped me perform even better, Mm. And, um, that ended up being a bit of, uh, you know, a, a bit of a dangerous game to play and s- suffered some consequences for it. But in a nutshell, that's kind of the the story and there's, there's a lot more to it, but maybe I'll just,
0: I'll, I'll pause there. <laughs> yeah. I, I've never heard the words narcotics and biohacking used in the same sentence before. That's, that's an interesting, <laughs> an interesting combination. Um, do you think that, uh, do you think that it was obvious to people around you that you were kind of dabbling in, in substances like this, or was it something that you kept pretty much under wraps? Um, it was obvious for sure to,
1: especially to my close friends. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when I ended up in, in I w- went through, I'm, sk- I'm skipping through kind of some of the, the darker parts, but after mm-hmm. I, you know, hit my bottom and, and been through a lot and ended up finally getting, working up the courage to tell some of my friends Uh, the, the, the most common reaction was like, I wish I had said something, Hmm. you know, and I wish that I had intervened because it was rather obvious. And, um, however, you know, when it came to some of my coworkers, um, I don't think they knew exactly what was going on. Um, I think it was clear that I was, you know, in an intense person and stressed and, you know, (laughs) that something was going on. I, I, Hmm. and I had various probes throughout time from different CEOs and managers because from Twitter, I went to a company called Copper and then to Slack and, and, you know, kind of did a, uh, made my way around the, the, the Valley. And um, yeah, I think, you know, for some it might've been obvious, but then again, like it was um, also somewhat par for the course. And yeah, you're right that narcotics and biohacking aren't two words that are typically associated together. I think that when I was into the biohacking scene, um, it was like – before. right now biohacking is associated with, you know, wake up, 5 a.m., cold shower, meditate, take some supplements. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was biohacking and and literally tweaking like my biology and physiology uh, in a more Hunter S. Thompson gonzo thing <laughs> um, where, you know, from my perspective, cool. just the perfect – yeah, you, well, I don't know. Yeah, maybe it was cool. <laughs> oh, was cool. But, yeah. but um, like the perfect, you know – Oh, old school. Yeah. 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 I thought you said that's cool. Yeah. I was like, yeah, you know, like the right combo of Adderall, um, and cocaine and, you know, Xanax to take the edge off and opiates to stay kind of cool and collected, um, will make you feel rather invincible and it sure are helpful at blocking, you know, emotions and feelings. And Mm so, um, yeah, it's, uh, that's in my mind, I was doing something that was cutting edge and innovative, and only I could handle. And a lot of narcissistic Mm. delusional, you know, ideas wrapped up in that.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what's coming to mind is I remember when we were in Guatemala together, we, we talked about this idea of like the feather brick dump truck. in in terms of like stages which someone can typically go through and it's almost like like I think of this as like our body giving us like little kind of signals in the beginning and then eventually like less subtle and then there's some kind of like like dump truck moment um was that the case for you in your journey do you think there were like noticeable feathers bricks and then some kind of, of major rock bottom
1: yeah, there were. And, you know, I have, the, I have you to thank for introducing me to that idea, the feather, the brick and the dump truck. And I ended up writing an essay about that when mm-hmm. we were down there together. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's it'd been a favorite. And so, yeah, I, I appreciate you for introducing me to that. I mean, the thing is, is like for, for an addiction of my severity, which was a, a severe one, um, you, you I had times where, um, you know, I was doing outpatient treatment on in secret on the, on the side, you know, not telling any of my coworkers or my spouse and mm-hmm. um, th- like failing through that and trying to go cold Turkey on my own and, and to make it. And so it, on the one hand, those could all be like really severe, um, not just feather strokes, but you know, um, brick moments. But mm-hmm. I think at the time I was just moving so fast and I had so much shame You know, Mm. a a lot of my identity had been uh, built around this idea of being a successful person uh, who had hustled his way into, you know, an Ivy League school and then somehow bumbled and biohacked his way into like a moderately successful career in technology. Mm. Um, And so, you know, to admit failure um, as an addict, that at the time Mm. it felt like even the mental health. Um, Things have changed a lot even in the last few years, but, you know, from, in my very limited worldview, I had, it was a really deeply shameful thing. And and I think Mm -hmm. shame is at the, it's at the crux of most addictions. Um, And Mm -hmm. so my real dump, I mean, I, I, I think, and this is where, when it comes to addiction, like what it's all, it's all relative, right? What might Mm -hmm. be a dump truck, um, for, um, Other people probably would have just been a feather for me. Um, But then again, there's other people who like, you know, they have to get like locked up in prison multiple times before Mm -hmm. they Mm -hmm. hit that dump truck moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And I went through, you know, uh, man, I went from everything from, you know, pawning electronics to... um, getting robbed. Um, and eventually when, what happened though, was the, the biggest thing was that, um, I had gotten a job at, at Slack, which is, uh, was a very hot unicorn. And despite it all, I, in my kind of erratic, um, startup record, which, because eventually the drugs stopped working, the biohacking turns <laughs> more into just maintenance. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. I lost that job, um, rather quickly. And, um, despite, and it was rather surprising though, in the way that it happened and when that happened, mm. um, and then was also facing, um, a, a, a new marriage. like I, I had been married only about a year and a half at that point, which was the mm. worst timing. I do not recommend being married <laughs> when you're in the midst of a, you know, really serious addiction. And, um, mm. there was kind of like a, it felt in my mind, we didn't split up at this time, but it felt like a one, two punch where I lost a job. And then, um, was also staying alone and away from my wife. And that Mm. felt like the marriage was crumbling. And that was, Mm. I was also in, you know, six figures in debt. And really at that moment I was like, this is, this is it, man. I was brought to my knees. And that was my, my dump truck moment where I lost, you know, two keystones of my identity, which was this, at this point, after now going through a few startups, and I wasn't really able to maintain a job. Mm -hmm. So I had lost my work identity. Mm -hmm. And then this beautiful young wife um, felt like that was slipping through my fingers. And so all these things that used to define me were gone. And I was forced to just look really like look at myself and ask for help
0: Mm. wow wow i i didn't actually know the full extent of it myself um what was like what was that like when you did ask for help And, and like what were the kind of early stages of the i guess the healing process like for you
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because yeah, we know each other pretty well. And so even (laughs) when you say that, like, I'm also what comes up for me is like, I'm aware that I have a little bit of like a psychic distance from all this stuff, like Mm -hmm. where I can talk about it and Mm -hmm. like, say, like, stay somewhat like emotionally safe from it all because it's really a lot to feel into. And so Mm -hmm. um, even hearing you say that, I'm like, Oh, yeah, geez, like you kind of just like really... Rationally talked about this pretty <laughs> heavy dump truck, which did, was not, you know, which was not fun, man. It was, it was, it hurt so bad, and yeah. um, what it looked like. Well, I mean, there's, there's more to it. The story always, but I think what I can share is that the, the arrogance and the, um this idea that I had things figured out and I knew what I was doing with my life. Mm. I was brought to this like really precious moment of where I was like literally on my knees crying and mm. begging in a type of prayer saying, you know, I'll, I'll do anything like I I do not and admitting really that I just don't know what I'm doing yeah. and um, I need help and I need help really bad. And, you know, I had been dabbling already with flirting with trying to go through outpatient and therapy on the side, but I knew at this point, like I was going to, you know, in that moment, what the, what, you know, a man can either really like keep going and kill himself or, you know, it gets, it's a really bad (laughs) situation to be in. Right. Where it's Mm -hmm. like, you're on the razor's edge. And I don't, you know, I think the mystery of like, what made me in that moment be like, you know what, I will try something else rather than go further is, is you know i i want to just say there's some something mysterious or spiritual that happens mm. um and i don't want to get like too poetic about that because you know um i don't understand what happened but i was just it it granted me a willingness to to or a surrender as nebulous as that word may be
0: <laughs> mm. Mm. wow yeah so um there was something that you shared recently that i was i was just reflecting on which was that the current model of addiction claims that when you're claims that you're broken, when in fact you're just kind of waiting to be broken open and kind of looking back with hindsight now, and obviously a lot more experience, how do you think about addiction? How do you define addiction?
1: Ooh, that's a, that's a big question. Um, I, I, I mean, addiction is a monster. Uh, I think that um, I'll say a few things. I think in when it comes to a definition, I, I like thinking of addiction as something—a behavior or a process, um, or something that's consumed um, that is done so compulsively that it begets negative consequences. And so, the the key kind of ingredients in there are the compulsiveness. Is that you know we don't really have the ability to stop ourselves from doing it Mm -hmm. and then we don't have the ability um, to prevent these negative consequences from amassing Mm -hmm. and so we tend to think of we tend to think of quote-unquote drug addicts as these people who are huddled up on the corner of the street not able to function um, when in fact um, the more i've studied addiction and the more and the deeper i go into this field Um, The more I believe that, um, and this is an idea popularized by by Dr. Uh, Andrew Tervaski, you know, we're either all addicts or none of us are addicts. And so if you look at some of, for instance, let's like just look at America and some of America's consumption patterns around uh, energy, around uh, the slaughtering of animals, around Mm -hmm. um, how we, you know, our consumerist culture. Um, w- mm. when you look at, or even, you know, just take a look at it, like your average person who, um, is on their phone all the time, or, um, you know, is addicted to plastic using plastics and single use plastics. And so I think that, um, w- w- like when you really zoom out that we're, we're living in a culture that is fundamentally addicted. Mm. Um, and so, um, that's, that's the more, yeah, the more I, I study it, the more I, I, that's where I land with things.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting to think about. I remember listening to Huberman and he talked about his kind of working definition was along the lines of addiction is that which narrows the things that give us pleasure kind of over time. And, and I was thinking of that alongside uh, something that Daniel Schmachtenberger, this idea that he has that the, the inverse of addiction is actually a pretty good, kind of proxy or metric for um human flourishing and kind of human society. And I think I think it is really interesting that the more a society or a culture gets addicted by different things, it almost like the less healthy we seem to be
1: Yeah, I love that uh Spottenberger's um definition. And it's I think it is a really good one. And I think that he he especially speaks to just the per the cultural pervasiveness mm. of addiction. Um, and so, um, the way that I view like some of the work that I do, whether it's writing about like the myth of quote unquote high functioning addiction, mm. um, because there's no, really no such thing. Right. Mm. Interesting. Um, okay. And, because, uh, it, well, you know, I think the term, uh, let me explain on that because I think the term high functioning addiction, really what it's doing, it's signaling, uh, our values as a capitalistic society Mm. and it's differentiating those who, who have the means and are able to contribute output into that economy Mm. versus those who cannot. And Mm. the difference between those two situations most typically has to do with um, the environment and um, circumstances that a person is born into, Mm. you know, like uh, give the person my, my very same biology, you know, and put them in a much worse situation who, you know, I was very fortunate and I had did it all on my own, but I also had support around me um, and someone with my same biology in a different situation would not have been able to get out of that situation mm-hmm. most likely. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the other thing with high functioning is that um, n- no high functioning addition will stay that way, you know, without it, an intervention, it will result in quote unquote low functioning. Right. Um, but I just think the word mm. itself, you know, what does it mean to function? You know, what are we really working at here? Mm. Um, and these are, um, yeah, deep questions. And I also just like want to lift up that, um, that Huberman line you said, because I think the other, the, the other part of that is that, uh, enlightenment is the progressive expansion of the things that bring you joy. Mm. And I, and I like that too. I think, you know, it's hard to define enlightenment, but, um, Mm -hmm. perhaps it is. Yeah. You know, letting everything, the good and the bad bring
0: you joy. Mm. I've never heard that. I like that. And, um, yeah, hearing you think you talk about high functioning versus low functioning, it reminds me of in kind of nervous system research there's this idea of the window of tolerance. And some people will, when there's a lot of stresses, they'll kind of go, out into like high tone sympathetic, which is basically just like over, overdoing everything. And it's, it's still dysregulated. And then, whereas other people will kind of go, will collapse down into dorsal. And usually right. what will happen is someone who's in that kind of like outside of their window of tolerance in that like stressed out state, for ages eventually a fuse will, will kind of go and they'll, they'll collapse down into some, some form of like immobilization or depression or whatever it looks like. Um, but yeah, I'd never kind of connected those dots before.
1: Totally, and I think that um, yeah, one of the things that you know, as as you know, um, that you know, I'm a student of somatic psychotherapy, and we 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 look at the window of tolerance a lot. And um, one of the most fascinating things I recently learned is that um, the quote unquote high functioning, and particularly when I talk about that, like an archetype of of a person, you know, many of the people in Silicon Valley and corporate America, lawyers, doctors, people who um or or really anyone who just maintains a stressful um schedule um are, op- are kind of operating in a constant level just above the threshold of their window of tolerance and like a permanent state mm-hmm. of sympathetic nervous system arousal. Mm-hmm. and um what might feel like you know um a calm moment for them is actually still operating above that baseline. And it's like, they're still in a heightened state. Um, and I very much can, can relate to that. And and in fact, I feel I'm still like, I, I, I like the joke that like, I'm not just detoxing from, and I'm now like seven years nearly into my recovery. Um, but I like to joke that I'm detoxing just as much from my worldview and from working within, you know, Silicon Valley and startup
0: culture, just as much as Mm. any Mm. of the
1: substances.
0: Mm. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask you about that actually. Um, like in what ways do you still see any kind of addictive tendencies surfacing, um, in your life? Like whether it's regarding productivity or writing or, or ways that, you know, maybe just more socially acceptable than, than cocaine.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, um, it's, it's a great question for sure. Productivity is, is one, and it's one that like I'm in, I'm committed to writing about and speaking about and kind of putting it out there as a way to kind of shake off the energy, as you know, from like all the somatic work, like the more we keep that in and the more yeah. we like pretend that we're not impacted by it. Yeah. Um, and I really, um, what, what I think of like, um, there, there's a term that I've somewhat, um, coined, which is a false urgency. And it's this idea. And I think this is relatable to anyone in the digital age. It's like when, you know, we feel like we must do something you, you've, you know, let's look at text culture, right. Where you get a text message or a barrage of text messages and all these group chats. And it's a lot of fun, but then we all know people who are messaging every you know relentlessly right when they get a notification and Mm -hmm. it can give you this sense that the somatic feeling in your body is like what is felt is like oh i actually need to deal with this like right in this moment Mm. um and um really what i think false urgency is is it's like somatically and neurochemically it's stress Mm -hmm. um masked under this really like elaborate guise of responsibility, mm. um, whether that's like tending to your Twitter notifications mm. or your email. I mean, I, I subscribe to a lot of newsletters as just being a writer myself. And, you know um, I, I do find that I like, I I've gotten sucked into this like inbox zero thing where if I have like 20 email newsletters in my <laughs> inbox, it it kind of feels like I have something to do. And if you really like take a step, right. It's like, Oh, I got to read Johnny's news. I got to read about, you know, these three other writers who like I skim it anyways, and I don't really care about what they're saying. (laughs) Um, And like, and if you zoom out, like how crazy and ridiculous is that, you know, we've got this world around us, this beauty. And Mm. um, it's just, it's really, um, it's tragic. And I'm still, fall victim to that i'm not above any of those tendencies i'd like to say that i'm getting better um but um yeah i think that like structuring days off and days of the sabbath helped me a lot to mm-hmm. to decouple from really productivity like is internalized capitalism <laughs> and, um, in the worst form, like I'm not, I, I want, I, I rail against like the late stage capitalism and all the, the, the downfalls, but I, mm-hmm. I don't want to like get it twisted and make it seem like I'm this like anti-capitalist because I think capitalism does a lot of great things for creativity and whatnot. But mm-hmm. of course the way is in which it shows up and particularly in this productivity culture are so nefarious. And you and I spend some time on like weird corners of Twitter and there's definitely like a an awakening happening right now about productivity mm. um which is mm. cool which is cool to see and good for guys like you and i who have been harping on this for a minute
0: <laughs> yeah there's there's for sure a kind of i think healthy skepticism around what it means i've yeah I i haven't heard the like phrase internalized capitalism but that is that's interesting um and it's definitely something that i've been yeah just thinking about myself a lot um there was something, something you said that I was going to come back to, but it's it's gone out of my mind. Um, so this is maybe a nice segue to. I uh, really want to hear more about your training with Hakomi and somatic psychotherapy, um, because I've I've heard Hakomi mentioned about four times in the last week by people here in Boulder, and um, I know that you've described it as as one of the more elegant approaches to. Um like emergent transformation, and so for someone listening who maybe hasn't heard of Hikomi, how would you begin to describe it um and how do you think it can be helpful for combating some of the things that we've been talking about
1: mm, yeah thank you i um uh, that's really cool that you're hearing about it out there, and it um it seems to be spreading uh, in the newosphere um Hakomi, unlike some of these other um programs like ifs and and modalities really Mm -hmm. excuse me or even um somatic experiencing like they don't have a marketing arm um, it really is geared like mm-hmm. the trainings are geared towards um, therapists and practitioners of those sorts, and so the it's known in trauma circles and certain psychedelic circles. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, like the, I, I think the downside is like they in the, well, the, there's there's good and there's pros and cons to that, which is that you know they're not like ambitiously trying to get it; they're just letting it spread organically, which is one of the core tenets of Hakomi. And so, let me. Um, let me just back up and say that Hakomi uh, is a method of somatic psychotherapy. And so what that means is it is a body centered approach to talk therapy. Um, So most simply when people think of psychotherapy or talk therapy, you would think that, Oh, I'm going to see Johnny, my therapist this week. And let me tell you, Johnny, I've been like really stressed. I'm working on this book proposal and Mm. you know, I got this going on in my life and this problem and um, rather than having to to get that kind of like weekly update and get into all of that, um, what a Hakomi therapist would ask you is like, okay, what are you feeling right now in your body, and where are you feeling it? And can we slow down? And so one of the, and investigate that. And so one of the core principles around Hakumi is it, it involves mindfulness. And so mindfulness in the most simple sense of being able to attune to what is, to what is happening mm. inside our body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it's a somatic psychotherapy, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the other common misconception is that you actually need to have a therapist having your hands on you, that, that can happen. Um, I do the majority of my work over zoom. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and Mm -hmm. so literally, what it means is that you're just flowing with what's happening in the body. Mm -hmm. And, um, the therapist is using cues to help guide you and to deepen you into the direct experience inside your body. Uh, and then from there, trusting the organic unfolding of what will arise. And so, one of the core tenets of Hakomi is that there is an intelligent, um, self-directed and positive healing force within all of us. Mm. Um, however, it, this part of ourselves tends to get obscured by the parts of ourselves. So Hakomi works with parts work, like with an IFS. Um, it also, um, gets obscured by a, a, an inability to be with what's happening in our body, um, and yet, when we actually go into that, um, into what is is happening in our body, um, things will will literally heal themselves on their own. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you can get really technical about this, and and I could tell you about memory reconsolidation, which is essentially the idea where you juxtapose a traumatic memory with a positive memory, and then literally, like, when you so, like for instance. Uh, you might follow what's, ha- oh, I noticed some, some like discomfort in my gut. And it's like, okay, what's it look like? Uh, it's like, it's like, there's eels swimming around and let the eels swim around. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, it hurts. And, you know, it reminds me of this time when I was being bullied on the playground. And then this, now they're, you know, the person in this traumatic memory mm-hmm. and from that state of mindfulness and letting them really access it, mm-hmm. uh, the the therapist can offer like they basically work with experiments to prompt new possibilities. And then from there, you know, that person in this kind of hypothetical example might be like, Oh yeah. Like, uh, and you know, so for instance, in that case, the therapist might use what's, what's known as a, a prompt or, uh, to say something like, you know, Johnny, you're, you're safe. And the person would be like, Oh, like in that, then creates a, a totally different memory. And so, yeah, I, I maybe am, am, am get rambling a little bit, but basically, mm. what happens is when we allow the body to to slow down and to deepen into the experience, we awaken uh, neural networks of of memories. And when we stay into those those memories long enough, they actually become neuroplastic in a way where we can introduce new possibilities and new ways of being mm. that fundamentally can change our core beliefs about ourselves. And mm. so that means like how we fundamentally organize around our our thinking our thoughts and and our behaviors in life and so the, that was a lot I'll I'll, mm. I'll
0: stop <laughs> no that's that's fascinating and um yeah I'm almost wondering if we could like connect the dots a bit here between the idea of false urgency that you mentioned earlier which is something that, that I think about it is how our our minds have this ability to confabulate stories based on whatever Chemicals our endocrine system is releasing. So if we're if we're experiencing dopamine and adrenaline and these things, and we're getting a bunch of text messages, then the, the mind is like, okay, this is urgent. I need to I need to apply to this. But if you were to to take a kind of hikomi or somatic approach to that, um how might you guide someone? Let's let's say let's say I've I've got my phone right here. Like I'm just um go- scrolling through messages, and I'm like shit. I have all these people to reply to. I'm I'm behind on stuff. Like. How might you guide me or someone through that experience of coming out of their stories and into the felt experience or, or interoception in their body?
1: Yeah, yeah, right. Interoception, that's that is the key word. Um, that's the, you know, be having an awareness of the internal landscape. And so the the very first thing you would do is is have a person like deeply slow down. So like put the phone away, turn off the notifications. Mm-hmm. And you would actually, you, you know, guide them into a type of mindfulness or meditation where you first have them observe, like literally like close your eyes. And it's, it goes without saying that, um, sometimes you, it, you, you have to work your way up to doing this with someone, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of people in our orbit can do this right away and they're great at it because they have a mindfulness practice. But a lot of the people I work with, particularly some of the men in tech, you know, mm-hmm. they, haven't really mind maybe they've done headspace, but, um, and so you have to actually work your way up to building trust with them, Mm. uh, to them when you would guide them into a state of mindfulness where that they can begin to observe, you know, stepping into a little bit of that witness consciousness, observing what's Mm. happening Mm. and then what you do. and, And I think one of the most beautiful things about Hakomi, um, and, and this is in contrast to, I mean, this is the same with therapy, but in contrast to a lot of like coaching paradigms is that you do not have an agenda, right? And you Mm. want to educate, psycho educate them on that. Like, Hey, we're (laughs) going to explore here. Mm. We're not going to look to try to solve your, your kind of your text messaging problem. We're just going to see what is here. Mm. And, um, and so, um, oftentimes what you would find in a situation like that, like, let's say someone's really overwhelmed with work is that they, they notice there's some tension or something that they're holding in their body, oftentimes like in the gut, in the belly, in the throat, sometimes mm-hmm. the head. And when you then bring that focus there, typically the energy will move somewhere else. And through that kind of process, they associate either memories and ultimately you're trying to get at a core belief, like a time when mm-hmm. they learned about themselves, like, I'm unlovable, I'm unworthy, I am, I am, um, I am like, no one wants to hear from me. Um, I'm annoying, right? These like really like foundational ideas where, mm-hmm. um, and you might think like, wait, how do we go from like talking about text messages to like, no one want? no, I'm unlovable. And oftentimes, like when you go down the, the scales, as you know, Johnny, like far enough, mm-hmm. there's this profound sense of, you know, how we relate to ourselves beneath it. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, does that,
0: Makes sense. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. And something that I'd like to just maybe double click on is the word mindfulness, because I think that quite a few people that I know associate meditation with something like a focus practice or a concentration practice where you're kind of using the mind to do something with a specific outcome in mind. But I think what you're describing is more akin to kind of interceptive listening, where there's more just like, an awareness of the body as opposed to just like disassociating, perhaps, and really listening and tuning into what is deeply present. And that to me feels distinct from the ways that mindfulness is often talked about in by most people.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that because it's true. I mean, mindfulness, mick mindfulness, right? It's become this wellness commodity that's mm-hmm. associated with um, you know, selling you apps and other and other nonsense. Mm. Um, and you're right that um, when I'm using the term mindfulness, I'm using just being like the simplest in the simplest sense of like actually ha- being aware of what's happening in your body. And also that can involve metacognition, metacogn- being aware of your thoughts and your thought patterns. Um, but you're right that interoception or actually being aware of like what's happening in your body mm. is a more accurate description. And uh, you know, even on that word, like it's very interesting because the the word interoception it's such a like clunky neuroscientific one that I don't love. And it's mm. so interesting when you study like indigenous cultures mm. who have so many different words to like they'll have a you know mm. sesame alarme is in one African tribe which is describes like your sense of like you know well being and and balance and space. Mm like a sense of wholeness they have words for you know yeah like literally different words for just what's happening in your in your gut um Mm. you know the the one for balance and like we only have this one word um and so it's it definitely is like reflective i think of a of our head-centric culture um where we have to yeah really take the
0: time to 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 be to spell this out so i'm glad that you brought that up Mm. yeah i I love that and i think if i know in sanskrit there are so many words that describe kind of very specific different states or stages of consciousness and compared to us in the West, where I think we're very <clears throat> external focused, um, certainly with language and and with our perception as well. Um so just just one more curiosity on, on this thread. Like let's say that let's say that you were to meet yourself when you were in the peak of your kind of um narcotic-driven uh addiction. Do you feel that the skills that you've learned now with Hakomi would have been able to help former Alex when you were kind of in that part of your life?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, and I think about that a lot. Um, yes, they would definitely help. Um, I think though, you know, and I also work, um, I'm the uh, co-founder of, a um, addiction and, uh, interdisciplinary addiction and, um, ayahuasca program and Mm -hmm. so i you know i work with addicts and have a lot of experience with it and you know hakomi absolutely would however you know i think the person who i was was pretty hot-headed pretty arrogant and unwilling to to feel and i worked with a lot of therapists and and doctors and Mm few were able to get through. I'd like to think that I could do better um,
0: because the arrogance I think <laughs>
1: there you go. Right. I I like to think I could do better. Um, you know, the most important thing I've learned when it comes to working with people who individuals who are struggling with the mm-hmm. complex problem of addiction is you have to meet them where they're at. Right. And it's, so yeah. you cannot, it's not something that you can force upon someone. And so I think that, mm-hmm. um, I would try to relate to that person in a way that, um, you know, maybe giving them some taste of the, the body based exploration, but uh, more than anything, I think I would try to just be there in a way that was like, you know, uh, relatable, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, you know where this road might lead if you keep going down this. And, Mm -hmm. and so, um, yeah, but I appreciate the question. And, um, I think that's the tricky thing about this, uh, about this problem is it's just as, sometimes it's so hard to get through
0: to people. Mm, Yeah. So you mentioned, um, you mentioned ayahuasca and something that I haven't, I don't think I've mentioned on this podcast before, but I've been, I've participated in 15, um, I ceremonies myself and they've been some of the, some of the most profound and transformative of evenings of my life. I think, I think that's fair to say. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear how did and has ayahuasca impacted your life? Um, Yeah, let's, let's start there. How would you, how would you answer that?
1: Uh, So I, interestingly, my story with um, ayahuasca begins when I was in the midst of my addiction, when I met a fellow, like one uh, on the Pacific coast highway, like on a stretch, actually after a surfing trip, Johnny, Mm. I'd been surfing in Santa Cruz and was on the way back and, Mm you know, of course was high and met this guy in a van and this was before van life was even a thing. And he, um, he told me about ayahuasca and I was like, Oh, I heard about that. And then secretly was like, can't that help? You know, addicts get out of their unbreakable cycle. And he was like, yeah, yeah, you should come. And I got his number and, um, you know, in the back of my mind, it's like, Oh, maybe this is my out. And I was, it was really hiding things at this point. And, um, a few weeks later when I was desperate and in withdrawal, I was looking for his number and I lost it. And I never found this mysterious man again Mm. that, you know, I think that if you were to apply a very uh, mythopoetic hero's journey lens to that experience, which I'm hesitant to do (laughs) as, you know, the part of me that likes to criticize the the new age. But if you are, it's like that kind of came as like my first guide Mm. um, on the path. And, uh, and then um, when I was a year into my own recovery, um, sober, um, I finally worked up the courage to, to drink ayahuasca. I felt like I had reached a plateau within, I was doing hardcore AA and, um, there were some, while I love that program and the steps I've benefited greatly from it. Um, I experienced something that happens to a lot of folks where I felt like I had somewhat plateaued and there was epistemically unflexible thinking in those rooms mm-hmm. in those communities. Mm-hmm. And I had, that led me to Buddhist based recovery communities and I was dabbling there and never really found a home. And I, f- it was just, I felt I was ready to do it. And also, frankly, I was very curious. And I think after a year I was like, you know what, maybe I can drink and smoke weed again. Um, mm-hmm. and if I'm being honest, I was having those thoughts and, um, those weren't my, my drugs of choice, but that's kind of what can happen. You know, where someone you can, we trick ourselves into thinking like, Oh, this is no big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went and drank ayahuasca and um, that was, it was so thunderously explosive and <laughs> otherworldly and mm-hmm. um, then also terrifyingly difficult. Um, but mm-hmm. after that first experience, I've never wanted to drink or smoke uh, weed again. And I've, and I never mm-hmm. have um, still since. And mm-hmm. so um, what that, first experience did, um, I think in a single weekend was eradicate my r- scientific materialist mm. reductionist worldview, which is that, you mm. know, if it can be measured, it's real. And if it cannot be measured, it is not real. Mm. And, um, it shows you how tenuous that, uh, that philosophy of mine was, uh, in the first place, if it could have been, mm. <laughs> you know, eradicated in just like a, a single setting. Um, but it, it really um, skyrocketed me onto um, a, a spiritual path, and then also um, because that first experience I had was so challenging. The second night, at least, um, where I went to this place of like non-dual ego death insanity. Um, which felt like it insanity because I had lost control like that. Mm-hmm. I, I only I'm still integrating from that experience and um, mm-hmm. what I it helped me understand really like everything that is underneath my addiction um, and so um, I felt fortunate to to come to it like at a place of stability in my recovery mm-hmm. um, and then when I went on that path I really began to understand like this this. Uh, propensity to control my life and to try to mm. avoid, um, deeper, scarier feelings around unworthiness that, uh, all that unfolded and unfolded and then, uh, you know, uncovered traumas and all the stuff that, you know, gets talked about in the pop psychology world today, but all that, I went through all that and it, mm. it um, it massively improved my life.
0: Mm. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. And I'd love to, love to connect the dots for listeners and and myself in a way of what do you think the connection is or was between your, the kind of collapsing of your materialist atheist worldview and the lack of a desire to, to drink or, or smoke weed or these things. And, and, and I ask that because I feel like for me, there is a, um, deep connection between the the desire for addiction and the feeling of a loss of connection to something bigger, the loss of connection to a, a more expansive um, worldview, and so like was that a? Do you think that connection was present for you? W- would you would you say that's the case?
1: That's yeah, that's a really interesting insight. I think in my case. Well, what it did was it helped further. I mean, my at the core of my story is, is getting a big dose of, of humble pie and and humility. You know, and helping me ground myself into something larger. And mm-hmm. um, what that experience did when I lo- when suddenly I was via direct experience shown that oh no, it, things cannot be as simple as I thought they were. I do not understand things in the way that I thought I did. And there's this whole other world, you know, like we can get into you know other dimensions and, you know, the stuff that I knew the mystics had been waxing about for millennia. Um, I think the, the, the best way I can describe what it was like that, that first time I drank ayahuasca was encountering a type of ancient wisdom that I knew deep, deep in like my bones that it was beyond time. And yet, core to like this, this human experience. And it was also this world, this, you know, this plane that I knew absolutely nothing about. And um, I've always been someone, you know, a lover, a, a philosopher, like a Phila Sophia, a lover of wisdom mm-hmm. in the in the Greek sense of the word. And I learned on that, that Misty weekend that um, there was just a whole nother type of knowledge from reaches of unfathomable space and time that Mm. I knew absolutely nothing about. And so I think the, when, when we think about awe of like, of awe of recognizing that you're something that is insignificant yet significant, but part of this massive thing, like, I think that's what happened to me. And that was um, a proper mystical experience Um, in the, in the true sense, like the research definition of the word. And and Mm. funny enough, there was a, Leading researcher there who who did run an assessment on me. It was like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) you had a proper, you know, mystical experience
0: Uh according to the rational um, description of it. We've quantified your mystical experience. (laughs) Well, I was also just
1: like, so I I was so like, you know, I had my socks rocked so hard that I was Uh like putting kind of pieces together. I didn't even realize that what the questionnaire was at that point, but um. Yeah, and then you know your question. I, I honestly had never really thought about whether. Um, well, yeah, they are. I have thought about that. I think this the way that you just so directly tied the two together between worldview and addiction. Um, I think that that rationalist worldview was a um, a justification for for my addiction for many years. It was like the self rationalization, the delusion. Um, it wasn't the the reason that led me to it, um, but it became like that very like you know it was scraping at the walls for meeting trying to cling on to something and it was you know according to our culture and guys like sam harris that was cool to be an intellectual atheist and so Mm -hmm. um and i always wanted to be cool man i think that at the end of the day i just wanted to i just wanted to you know like if i'm being honest Mm -hmm. um and so getting humbled in that way was 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 magical
0: Mm. Yeah. And, and I love, um, I love the, the kind of phrase philosophia, this love of wisdom. And I wanted to ask you, what are some of the things that you learned from studying with the Shipibo indigenous lineages and, and maybe related to that? Um, do you think that there is a potential concern of, uh, losing some of this kind of ceremonial ritualistic wisdom and approach with the plant medicines in the way that it's being applied uh more clinically in in the West
1: mm, yeah it's a it's a great question and so um I've taken two trips down to uh the to stay with the shapibo and um and to study with them and to um do extended dietas where you're basically secluded in a small isolation hut working with the plant and uh preparing to cleanse the body and deepen your relationship with the plants and um, with the Shapibo in that um, cosmology, it's not just ayahuasca that they work with, but they have the whole cornucopia and pharmacy of jungle plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- yeah, and I think that, um, well, w- first of all, like you learn just how how in touch they are with the land and how many different plants have specific purposes. Um, I remember, I'll tell a quick story of like when I broke my dieta one day uh, I was served eggs and you know, with salt and that it was like not vegan and had salt. You're not supposed to have any salt or any spicy food really. And then you don't really see anyone um, because you're literally alone in the jungle. And, um, when I was given that, those eggs, I got like the gnarliest stomach and, you know, jungle type stomach sickness, and it was awful. And I was like in tons of pain for uh, a few hours. And then I told one of the uh, the the uh, guides down there, and he he's like, "Okay, come with me," and took me into the jungles and took me to this little tree, which was this or a little sh- like big shrub, and it was actually jungle basil, just basil. Had me scrap a bunch of the basil take a pot of boiling water, throw it in there, make basil tea. And I drank it and literally the stomach went completely away. And so uh, stuff like that happens where you're just truly in awe of like the, all the ways in which these basic, you know, plants like basil or can be so impactful. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing that is interesting that I think I learned from, from staying with them is just how relationship oriented they are. Like, so when you, for instance, when they see someone coming down who has, um, you know, pain, they'll might say like, Oh, do you smoke a lot of cannabis? And they see a lot of American men who come down who they think have really been abusing the ganja plant. Right. Because they see everything Mm. through the lens of relationship. Mm. And so, or even if like, you know, um, or even like, you, you know, there's like other crazy dark shaman stuff where it's like, if you cross someone's paths wrong, they might curse you. Or if you, if you're, if you are not respectful to the river, the river could curse you. And so it's a fundamentally relational way of, um, of, of understanding of like how, how we are, um, with ourselves and with the greater, uh, environment. Uh, and then your the second part of your question, um, are we at risk of losing the uh, ceremonial nature? Um, I think there's there's two things here, which is one, it's super important to preserve these traditions and to not just appropriate uh, these these people um, and to be in reciprocity with these communities. And mm-hmm. um, through the work that I do, we, we're, um, through nature care programs and then other initiatives, um, we we. You know that's kind of what the work is 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 all about is maintaining those lineages and expanding them, and then we're really fortunate that many of these wisdom keepers, um, not just in the Shipibo, but of the Colombian um, lineages as well, and all around, like they're allowing these traditions to be passed on, Mm. and so just the fact that they're sharing these practices, I think we really need to honor that. and yeah, and like the other part of your question is like on, in losing it in a clinical setting, I think something with ayahuasca in particular, it's hard to bring into a clinical setting. Mm-hmm. All of the psychedelics can produce varying experiences for folks, but ayahuasca in particular, um, you know, I- I- even on our last retreat, we, we you have a, vari- a true range of experiences where someone might have like a massive... Um, a massive spiritual experience and then the other person might have like nothing happen to them Mm -hmm. and like typically when you're dealing with other classic psychedelics even something like psilocybin mushrooms Mm -hmm. that's a little bit more rare and so the way ayahuasca works and the way that it's brewed between um two plants is it's a little bit mysterious mysterious and Mm -hmm. hard to bring into a clinical setting Mm -hmm. um but i do think that like there are ways to use these psychedelics, just in like, particularly in the ways that we work as providing an intervention to help individuals struggling with addiction break kind of in cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's ways in which you can bring that and it doesn't have to be the full blown ceremony that can still get them, uh, an important experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a, it's, it's a balance here. And so like, I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, I'm an advocate for both, um, like a c- ceremonies yeah. and the clinical, the clinical
0: work. Got it. Got it. Thank you. And you've, yeah, you've mentioned Natura a few times and I'd love to hear you kind of unpack what is it about this program that you think makes it so unique? And, um, something that, that I'll kind of add for more context is, is one of my criticisms of A lot of the ayahuasca kind of retreats that I've I've heard about is that there isn't really that time for integration. There isn't really the kind of the aftercare or the, 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 the helping someone to integrate what might have been a kind of profound realization back into their day to day lives. And it sounds like that's something that you're, um, or that Natura is really kind of looking to tackle. So could you just give a sense of like what the program entails and why you think it's particularly uh, unique?
1: Yeah, um and thank you. You know, um uh, like w- I think that that's that is one of the problems that we set out to solve, which is um one providing a a longitudinal um container to work with individuals. And so it's a 3-month we we offer a 3-month program that has a mix of individual counseling, group counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, it there's an online coursework Um, Instruction and contemplative practice, and so uh, it's we're teaching folks the basics of meditation and mindfulness, all in preparation. So there's um, there's four weeks of preparation for a two week immersion where you're um, having nature nature immersions and uh, purgatives to clean the system and vegan food, healthy food, river walks, meditation, yoga, Uh, and then there's there's ceremonies as well to help provide that that experience, and then there's 6 weeks of uh similar, you know, counseling um in individually and and group based on the back end of the program. Mm-hmm. Um and so um I think that it's our kind of belief that when you provide one an interdisciplinary approach, right? Where you're right, most retreats it's like hey, come come for our week long retreat, spend a bunch of money and then, you know, we'll see you later and hope it goes well. Um where like in reality you really want to like teach people the basics of like, here's how you met. Here's how to meditate. Here's how to like giving them a little bit of like kind of instruction on what you can expect from this experience, like proper, proper prepper time. Mm -hmm. And then the, you know, as my teacher says, the ceremonies are the easy part. It's the, that, are lo- bringing the the lessons into our lives afterwards, which is the hard part, and so yep. um, trying to really provide a container for that on the back end, and then the other element that's unique because we're working with individuals struggling with addiction and veterans and whatnot is that we have a uh, physical location mm-hmm. um, in um, Seattle at Recovery Nexus where people can go and stay in sober living that is also conducive to the intentional uh, use of entheogenic sacraments, and so. Um, we're trying to really like provide a, a, a a different, a different approach. And I I mean, I think that there will be many programs like this in a few years from now. Um, I think it just will have to happen. Um, so so, I mean, I imagine not too different from, well, actually I don't know, but I mean, you know, you're providing a long-term program with nervous system mastery. So, you know, like how it takes Mm. time to educate and build people Mm. and then integrate it. And so Mm.
0: that's, that's the, the idea. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, it reminds me of something that you, I think you tweeted something along the lines of, uh, it was about altered states and how altered states could become a spiritual bypass or avoiding feelings. Um, and they can also become permanent states of reality and clarity and connectedness and peace. And what in your experience makes the difference between those two? Do you think it is having access to community, regular practices, uh, these kinds of things. Like how would you distinguish between those two directions?
1: Yeah. Well, that's actually, and I'm glad you, that you mentioned that it's, um, a, that's a line from that altered states can become permanent states. Is a line from Ken Wilber, who's one of my favorite um, mm. thinkers and the integral theorist. And, mm. um, I, I think the the first part, though, that they that altered states can become a spiritual bypass is is something that's worth underscoring because mm-hmm. yeah, it, it really happens frequently. And your your question around is it about the community? Um, yeah, a person needs community, but honestly, like it depends on what that community is because there are some straight commu- like full communities that are like encouraging bypassing. And, um, you know, particularly we see this in the new age transformational space Mm -hmm. where, um, it is a lot of, uh, a lot of just replication of what we see in the hyper individualistic aspects of our culture, Mm -hmm. uh, amplified by, you know, capitalistic, um, marketing tactics, um, that can produce this really dangerous mix of Mm -hmm. like what it means to heal and what it means to have a peak experience and, Mm -hmm what it, that also means in terms of like our interdependence and our relationship uh, around each other. And, um, and so I, I, that is something that I think is like, it's, re, you know, this work is not for, for doing this approach, isn't for everyone. And it's just so important that people have um, trusted um, resources and um, support around them, you know, people. Um, so, yeah, I guess what to say there is it really, um, yeah you, you have to be very careful in this space um, because, Um, it's, it's so easy to just like have a mystical experience and then to think you're God and, you know, that you need to turn this into a career and right away and (laughs) all the other things that can happen. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I would say that, um, like, you know, having support from, you know, either a therapist or a coach or a guide who, who you trust, ideally someone who has like walked that path can be very helpful. Um, and then, yeah, having, um, you know, a community around you, people who are like your true peers, people who are not trying to sell you something, um, but people who, that, you know, you can like respect and trust and who have like your genuine and best interests at heart, mm-hmm. uh, and sharing like what you're doing with those people. Um, I think that that's really important because one of the ways, like, I mean, I've definitely been guilty of spiritual bypassing and sometimes like we need to be called out on it, you know? Um, And so it's a, it's a tricky one, but it's, um, yeah. And I like to like talk about it lightly and poke fun, you know, because it's like, we're all doing our best um, (laughs)
0: around this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that whilst on the one hand, um, people talking about experiences with psychedelics um, in a more kind of open way, I think is fantastic. And then on the shadow side, I think there is the risk of, maybe more like spiritual materialism where people are going to, to kind of ingest seven different psychedelics in the span of a weekend. So they can come back and, and just almost like talk about that experience to to their peers. And it's like another badge to collect in some ways. And I think that is definitely a risk that I'm seeing too. Um,
1: Totally, man. Yeah. It's like, um, and that's where I feel, um, you know, I feel uh, in alignment about working with, you know, individuals who are struggling with like really severe problems in the addiction realms in, in introduce, and it's not right for everyone, you know, like we, you have to have a, a vigorous screening process, but, mm-hmm. um, like, and I'm, and it's not to say that, you, you know, you can't use psychedelics in a, in a, just a recreational fun way. I'm, I'm an advocate for that when, when the time is right and safe. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's, like, I think like just being really clear about what a person's intentions are and like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah, because for me, um, yeah, it can get, it can get really tricky. And so like, it's important to like, to make sure that, yeah, you're just hold, holding the the intention and the, the mission, which is to help mm-hmm. in this case, people to people break from what has been a really you know painful cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah,
0: yeah. I appreciate you mentioning that though. No, thank you for speaking to it as well. Um, so yeah, I had a I had a message from a stranger uh, on Twitter the other day and he was asking of all the modalities that I've experimented with, which did I find the most impactful? And I have some thoughts, but I, I was wondering like, what might you offer as a good starting point for someone who's say, say just working in tech and realize that they might have some like stored emotional debt or trauma or, you know, a lack of. Um, awareness in some ways, but they're unsure where to begin, like what might be a good starting point that you would suggest for someone listening?
1: Hmm, That's a really good question. I think it depends on the person. It really does. I mean, I, you know, like what I would say is to like, I think I would go two routes with it. Um, if the person is open to doing Therapy, i would in the because not everyone is even down to do that sort of therapy i'm a big advocate for somatic psychotherapy i think Mm -hmm. that all future versions of of like what is on the cutting edge of psychotherapy will have some body-based element to it so it can be quite transformative and quite fast um you know and and then um on the other hand i would say like if someone's like a little bit more of like an active person and so for instance I don't know if that would have appealed to me when I was working in tech to just go through therapy. I would say to go do breath work or like ecstatic dance or something where you're like moving your body and like actually kind of being out there with other people. Um, Cause those can be pretty big, amazing experiences. And I'm a, and I love just moving. And so like, Mm. when I think about that question, I think about what would I enjoy most? And, you know, on the deep work front, it might be a version of somatic psychotherapy, but then when it comes to like something that actually could be like a little bit more fun, I would mm. do a mix of like a breath work, um, you know, class or journey or, or dance or even a martial arts.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great answer. Um, and just for, for clarity, um, in the, the bucket of somatic psychotherapy, there's, there's a there's somatic experiencing. Um, are there any others that you kind of put into that bucket just so people know what to look for?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, there are those, I'd say Hakomi and somatic experiencing are the two main ones. The difference being that Hakomi is rooted a little bit more in Buddhism and Taoist Eastern modalities of nonviolence and organicity. Mm -hmm. Um, Somatic experiencing is a little bit geared more at nervous system Mm -hmm. uh, regulation and, um, you know, like um, somatic experiencing is a little bit better at heavy traumas. Where Hakomi is geared more at like developmental traumas, um, and so um, that might be all like more information than someone needs. But no, um, I don't think you can really go wrong. Like with with like, and I don't think yeah. it, it necessarily matters. You know, between the two, and like any, any person who's trained in somatics should be able to to help them get there. And there are m- many other modalities out there, but those are just the two that 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 come
0: to mind. Okay, thank you. Um. All right. Well, would it be okay to ask a few rapid fire questions and then we will wrap up? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So question number one, what is one concept or practice that you wish you'd known earlier in life? Metamodernism. Hmm.
1: Uh, and this one, so metamodernism is it's a cultural philosophy, um, meaning that it is a way of articulating kind of the vibes of the times. And so like very simply, we had modernism and uh, all the benefits of like the scientific revolution onto what we created in a, as a modernistic society. Uh, and then we had um, postmodernism, which was kind of like realizing, oh, wait, all these technological tools – didn't really result in income income equality and it seems like things are pretty pretty messed up and meaning is actually entirely subjective and it resulted in a lot of cynicism mm-hmm. and a lot of the music like um the nirvana and the smashing pumpkins and um, i studied postmodernism in college mm-hmm. and uh, it honestly kind of messed me up like <laughs> like just learning how meaning, meaning didn't exist and the, the deep cynicism, um, and that humans, you know, inevitably will, will search for meaning everywhere, but it is a fruitless journey. Um, and so you must just like, you know, do what you will with it. And and it, um, it, it kind of like left me a little bit, um, you, you know, jaded. And, and then when I discovered metamodernism, like in my recovery, which is the next phase of this evolution, which is like, okay, yeah, things are pretty messed up in the world, but, we're still going to fight for a better planet and, uh, we're going to embrace humor and meme culture and like all the benefits of the internet. And so, um, you know, the metamodernism is fundamentally like a digital first, um, philosophy. Uh, it involves both and thinking dialogue over dialectics, you know, knowing your triggers, um, and I feel like when I'm just the type of nerd who, when I discovered modernism, who's like, boom, <laughs> you know, uh, and I just wish that, um, I had known that earlier. And so that I, yeah, that's what I wish I would have known.
0: Beautiful. What is one book that you've read in your deep fix book club that you'd recommend to listeners?
1: Mm. We've read some really good ones. I think the, the, the one that comes to mind is already free, which is, uh, Buddhism meets psychotherapy on the path to liberation. Mm-hmm. It's by Bruce Tiff. And it's a fascinating read that is attempting to not necessarily reconcile psychotherapy and Buddhism, um, but help like draw distinctions b- between the two. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, in particular, it's really good at like learning to just be with the feelings and with what is and some of the stuff we were talking about earlier um about um practicing acceptance and um i i that you know that came to my mind um the first thing that popped in and so that one i was a great book
0: highly recommend it i love that i've not heard of it i'll definitely check that out um oh yeah you you'd devour it <laughs> do you see yourself working with plant medicines in the long term and do you agree with Alan Watts' idea that if you get the message, hang up the phone?
1: I do. So I think I would my like iteration on that is that Get the message and you can hang up the phone, but stay like tuned in, you know, right? Because it's not about just disconnecting. Don't unplug the phone. And I think that it's Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you can you you don't have to like keep I think the 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 big takeaway there is you don't have to keep going back for more, mm-hmm. but you can take you can take the lessons in. And so to answer your question, um I went through my phase, man, of like relentless pursuit of you know healing and particularly with ayahuasca and my trips to the jungle and i had a lot of stuff to heal now i really only am like doing it when i'm bringing others into it and so that's how i mostly see myself mm-hmm. working with it in the future is bringing others into it and as a way of community You know, i have great community around it um and and yet like i also think that um like i don't know it's you know guys like ramdas and alan watts and um Many others will are like really quick to talk about how, um, or even Sam Harris is like, well, you know, uh, I did psychedelics and I it was so amazing for me, but then you know you don't need it, and I think that that's true um but i also think that like let's not forget that ramdas and sam harris like all ramdas in particular his spiritual path began because of his mushroom journey mm-hmm. with tim Leary. and that led him to become the closest living thing we have to an american saint and so like yeah this is this is another one of the paradoxes of psychedelics which is that you do not need them to awaken and to live a life joyously um and yet for when we look at the existential problems that our society faces today, um, they can be an effective and intense intervention. Not always the right one, um, but um, it's one that I am, I'm biased, but I'm an advocate of uh, in the right settings um, for people
0: um, who feel so inclined. Very well said. Um, so last question, besides enthygents, who or what has been your greatest teacher in recent years?
1: I like how you're like, besides, don't don't (laughs) do the easy answer and say, besides, besides I'm going to think, I'm going to think about this for a moment. I would say that Ramdas, I know it's like, I've, part of me's like, oh, it's so cliche. But I've written about him. You know, when I was in college, I had a, a, a ball python named Ramdas. This is when I was only into his psychedelia infused. I did not like that. Um, That's amazing. I was just like, oh, yeah, he was the. Yeah. This is like, you know, I was like, Oh, he was this psychedelic guy. And then I went through my journey when I was in recovery, I would listen to one of his lectures like every single day. Mm -hmm. And I started, at I've listened to every single lecture on the be here now, Mm -hmm. uh, podcast. And there's like, I think almost 200 of them or 150 at this point. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, his books and teachings, uh, he's the, the only person, I mean, I've gone through phases with Alan Watts and other folks like David White, like you you know, and, but Ramdas is the only person that no matter what mood I'm in, how low I am, mm-hmm. like sometimes I can listen to Alan Watts and be like, yeah, you know, a little arrogant, not quite doing it for me. You know, it's not hitting me today, <laughs> but like, or even Jack Kornfield, another one of my favorite Buddhist teachers, like sometimes I'm like, all right, too sleepy, Jack. I'm like falling asleep. <laughs> um, but Ramdas, without fail, just the mix of like... Mm-hmm. Just unflinching wit. And I'm also like similar to him, kind of, you know, a Jewish guy who was in, you know, high flying worlds and then went on a spiritual path. So it just has a way of like cutting in this, this, the self uh, mockery. Like (laughs) I try to, I try to practice that myself. And he reminds me to not, not take myself so seriously.
0: Yeah. Great answer. I've, I've also listened to, I think every single one of the Be Here Now network podcast episodes. And I did, I just discovered he, there's a couple of new books on Audible that I hadn't heard before. And I was like, Oh, new material. I get to get to listen to new stuff. Um, <laughs> so I think I, yeah, he's, have he's you phenomenal. done
1: experiments in truth?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. You've done that one. Well. That's yeah. one of my favorites. Yeah. I guess it's not so old.
0: But, um, yeah, so good. Any, anyhow, um, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much. Where could listeners learn more about your somatic psychotherapy coaching, your your writing, the Natura Care Program? What's the best place for people to get in touch and check out your work?
1: My website is deepfix.co. So that's .co without uh, the C-O-M. Um, Great name. And uh, my newsletter is DeepFix on um, Substack, um, Natura Care Programs, is N A T U R A, NaturaCarePrograms.org. Uh, and it's a, an interdisciplinary addiction program. And on social media, I'm at Olo Al. Um, and I think that's it. And yeah, thank you, Johnny, so much. This is just, uh, I know we've been talking about doing this for a while, <laughs> and it's just such a
0: pleasure to to be in a, in a real honor to be with you. Yeah, amazing. So I'll, I'll include all those links in the show notes. And I'd like to close with this rule care line. He said, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. With that in mind, what is the question that is most alive in your consciousness right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with?
1: Oh, that's beautiful. Um, I think something I've been really... Um, playing with is okay so on the one hand we have there's this idea that um we can have you know we need to have free speech in our society and yet there's also this idea that we need to really focus on our interdependence and picking those up with less means and so in a nutshell i'm kind of talking about the like woke anti-woke battle that's happening and it is impacting a lot of A lot of people I know. And I think the question I'm grappling with is like, how can, how can we remember the truths of both, both perspectives and not get lost on the extremes? Um, Because I think there's, there's important, important, like really important stuff on both ends there.
0: Um, Yeah. Yeah. So that's something I've been thinking a lot about. Beautiful. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We will wrap the show with that. All right. Thank you, Johnny. Ciao, Ciao. All right, man. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.